This is W T M. Watch this movie. What? <laughs> How you doing? Oh, good for you. Oh, you betcha, yeah. Oh, wait. I drink it up. First, you gotta do the trouble shuffle. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. W G M. Watch this movie. Welcome back to a brand new episode of WTM Watch This Movie. I am Eric Mulder. Some of us pump, and some of us slump. Joining me once again with a brand new clip is Mr. Positivity, Wolfie T. Oh, he's an imbecile, probably from birth. Man's a complete idiot. Pray to God he's an idiot. What's up? Just uh, basking in the glow of my win once again. <laughs> We gotta stop. I know it was my my idea this year, but we gotta stop doing the Oscar prediction contest. Why? Because I always win. Because <laughs> you got your finger on the pulse of the industry, apparently. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the last two years, I won, but I only won by one pick each year. Well, this year you crushed me. Yeah, what four or five? That I had sixteen, a, right? I think I had eleven correct. Okay. I had a run where I had like 10 in a row that I missed. Yeah, you kept on <laughs> updating one out of one out of eight, one out of ten. Well, I was just two I, out of ten. I was doing that so I could keep track myself. But uh and then I don't have to go back and count later. But it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. How did you do it with the some of the lesser known categories? Like the live action short, you know, animation short. Oh, terrible. I got none of the, uh, let's see. I don't think I got any of the shorts correct. I didn't get either of the uh, documentaries correct. I got musical score wrong, but I got the original song right. Animated movie I got wrong. Cinematography I got wrong. I, I just got a bunch wrong. <laughs> There's, I started getting uh, more right once the bigger categories came up. Yeah. In fact, we should change it in the future. We should have kind of a weighted system. Best picture is worth five points and actor, actress worth four each, director four maybe, and do uh, best supporting is uh, three, screenplay two, and like everything else is one. Cinematography probably put it two, put everything else at one. Yeah, it's more important that you get the best picture winner correct than it is best documentary short subject. Yeah, I don't know if that would change anything really because we had a lot of crossover in those categories, anyways. Yeah, but just you know, some somehow you just knew you knew what all the documentary and short subject winners (laughs) were gonna be. You knew not to guess my year of dicks was going to win, <laughs> which I'm a little surprised it didn't. Yeah. I should have known that Navalny would win for best documentary so that they could pat themselves on the back and say, yeah. we're defeating Putin in our own way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, saw that coming. I got to say, though, Jimmy Kimmel kept it pretty 
clean as far as political stuff went. Like it was, he, he steered clear of a lot of political stuff. Yeah. Until towards the end, after they gave out the Oscar for best editing, they made a joke about Tucker Carlson showing the January 6th coverage for yeah. video. Yep. He didn't call him by name, but he's like, oh, you can. You can do anything with editing. You can cut 44 hours of violent insurrection footage into looking like a couple minutes of a guided walking tour. Mm-hmm. Okay, guy. Yeah, I think someone was definitely in his ear this year. Maybe the low ratings are finally affecting them and how they do the show. You got to rein in the, the political talk. There wasn't even a lot of politics in the speeches. I mean... No, certainly with like Navalny, you know, Navalny, and how do you say it? Navalny, no, Navalny, 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 something like that. You know, talking about how he's still in prison and all that, and there, you know, little things here or there. But I, I just realized it uh, a little bit ago when I was going through Facebook. I think the headline of the article was, I think it was a Unilad article talking about Jimmy Kimmel's a. Is a disgrace for America. He did such a terrible job hosting. It all stems from that time he's doing some crowd work, and he talked to the Malala lady. Yeah. I don't really know who she was. I think I missed that part, but yeah, she's she's like a Nobel Prize winner, youngest ever, I guess. Yeah, she was. I I, would I say thought Greta would have gotten one of those by now. No, they don't give away for that stuff, <laughs> for that pseudoscience. No, I think she was uh she was from Iran and like she was like tortured or something for trying to go to school and so like she led some kind of campaign to get Iranian girls educated. Okay. I believe that's what her backstory is. But for some reason she was at the Oscars and uh Jimmy Kimmel asked her a stupid, you know, pretty uh picked question or whatever mm-hmm. i forget what he asked her he's uh it's about do you think harry styles spit on chris pine that's right but he he led up to it as something completely unrelated and yeah. uh and then they had the cocaine bear out there because elizabeth banks was giving away uh an award for <laughs> visual effects they couldn't come up with someone else to present with a voice yeah it sounded like she'd <laughs> been uh having a, a rough weekend with her throat um, Have a little too much, uh, yeah. <laughs> Getting an eye for own supply, I think. Well, it could be many things that bruised her throat this weekend, uh, but uh, yeah, her voice was not there. Um, what are you trying to imply, Brett? Not, nothing. You're the one who's, uh, <laughs> sir. Get your mind out of the gutter. You know, like on the grapist. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he. Uh, he asked Malala about that, and then he, he went to a couple other people. He asked Jessica Chastain what, what it was like to work with uh, Matt Damon on The Martian because he doesn't know how to read. And Jessica Chastain was the only person in the entire building wearing a mask. Yeah, I saw that. I just saw, I didn't see it during the telecast, but I saw the picture afterward, which is odd. Yeah, yeah and she was reluctant to take it off. But then she went up and... Gave away the Best Actor and Best Actress awards without it. Yeah, she put Halle Berry at risk. Asshole. <laughs> but yeah, so he, he went to like three different people in that segment. And uh, 
because they're setting up the stage for I think the in memoriam or something, or maybe it was uh, it was it was it might have been one of the best song performances I forget, but um, of course they forget the the young actress from Triangle of Sadness. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I, I didn't even know she her. died until after the fact. I saw people were like, "Why wasn't she in there?" Yeah, I think it was she passed away in August. I think. I I don't even know. Like it was a while back, you know, it wasn't so recent. And I saw some people are like, well, here's a website where they list more people who died. Mm-hmm. And they had like Albert Pune and Tom Sizemore and um, I forget who all was on there. But there was like another like dozen more stars who were way more recognizable than the people they put up there. Yeah, they always say that, but yeah, they never, I've never seen the website you know, on the bottom of the screen or anything like that. Yeah, you would think they'd be on the broadcast say to honor more people, check out this website. Or you know. Because for some reason the Academy had to, you know, have another one of those segments that's devoted to the Academy and their their museum. <laughs> Which I remember they did that with Wanda Sykes a couple of years ago. Might have even been pre-pandemic or something. It was like come, she was like showing everyone the new um museum. You know, it's open, open for biz. Yeah, I think it opened in 2019. Why are they showing this again? Like, what was the purpose? It, I guess it's 95 years. You know, it was weird that they did the 100 years of Disney and then 100 years of Warner Brothers. Although, I guess the Disney was more of just an ad, it seemed like. <laughs> the Disney well, was just, here's here's the little mermaid trailer. Suffer through it. Yeah. And then Warner Brothers with, well, you know, Morgan Freeman and... uh well, he was staring at Margot Robbie. <laughs> There's a funny screen grab of him just staring at her tits. Obviously, he was just glancing, you know, but he was me too, but he over he <laughs> overcame it. Dude's like 90. Let him be. Yeah. Not gonna change say, now. <laughs> it was nice. It was nice to have Margot Robbie out there and not have that absolutely grating New York accent <laughs> for once. Not that the Australian accent is that much better, but it's better than, you know, listening to her talk like fucking uh, Harley Quinn for how long she was on stage. Yeah. Or the Duchess from uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Or even like a Sharon Tate, she had the same kind of accent, too. <laughs> like, it's it's the only American accent she knows. That's kind of true for most you know, Brits and Aussies. But uh, yeah. So we're going to continue to talk about the Oscars for a little bit, recap them, and then we'll get into our top 10 favorite films of the year. And then we're going to finish our slate of movies from our youth, along with some more recently scenes. And I think we'll each do, you know, one movie each for our birthdays. We'll each pick one. And that'll kind of take us through May, I think, along with some more recently seen episodes along the way, of course. And then this summer we'll do something. Have some ideas. We haven't decided yet, but we'll figure it out. If you got suggestions, let us know. Uh, what else? So obviously everything, everywhere, all at once was the big winner. Big surprise. Oof. Oh, I was so sick of those guys by the end. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I didn't like that movie to start with, like, but I didn't hate it really. Yeah. Uh, but I think I hate it now. <laughs> 
I'd like to give it another chance, but yeah, I was not a fan. Uh, there were certain things I liked about it. I did think the performances were very good. Although Jamie Lee, I was like, why was she nominated? Uh, so yeah, we, we, neither of us picked Jamie Lee. You picked Stephanie Sue. Or is it, is that how you pronounce it? I think it's shoe shoe. It's okay. H H S U, but I think it's shoe. I picked Angela Bassett because I thought, you know, the two, everything everywhere nominees were going to split their vote. So I was like, okay, everyone's going to, and plus people were supporting Bassett and black Panther and all that anyways. So did you know that? Get it. Did you know that Wakanda Forever was a tribute to our fallen brother Chadwick Boseman? <laughs> I wish somebody would have said that last night. You know, you didn't. You didn't hear that ever. The whole broadcast. Actually, it was more on the pre-show. I, I watched about a half hour of the pre-show. They had about three people on there who wouldn't stop talking about how Wakanda Forever was a tribute to Chadwick mm-hmm. Boseman. Yeah, they're really they're trying like, to I get it. I get it. Trying to will that win for Bassett. She was not happy <laughs> when she lost. <laughs> she shouldn't be. Jamie Lee Curtis is just a terrible person. Yeah. I thought her co-star should have won it over her. It was like one of those pity lifetime achievement uh Oscars. Like, okay, you've been around for a long time and uh you know, you don't really deserve it, but Everybody else has uh, either had one or uh, is young enough that they have a chance to come back. So yeah. we're going to give it to you. Well, you know, Jamie Lee, she's kind of turned to the cool mom now, you know? Well, I told you before that my first recollection, recollection of her was her doing the whole cool mom thing back in the 90s. Freaky Friday. It's like, Jesus, get off of Nickelodeon. Fucking hey. I remember the hot mom. That's where I knew her from, from like True Lies, stuff like that. Yeah, I wasn't aware of True Lies. I was seven years old when that came out. And Trading Places. I know I had to leave. So for True Lies, I had to leave the, the room during the striptease. But like I, I saw glimpses. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'd, I'd seen her so many times on Trading Places. And that was always edited on TV. But um Always, you know, dress and sexy. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, actually, I think training places, uh, I think I had a teacher in eighth grade show us that, but he fast forwarded through the uh, with the nudity or whatever was in there. It's so weird that she did nudity for that film and that scene and not in the any of the horror films. See, I, I, I didn't see any of her movies till I was grown. Like, even training places, like, I don't even count that because we watched it for like a, an hour in school one day as like mm-hmm. a like an end of semester thing. Sure, but uh, like I can't remember any of her other movies. You know, I I don't think I had saw any of them until I was older. Um, so like my only exposure to her was like when she would appear on like the Kids Choice Awards or the Teen Choice Awards, or you know she'd do the Activia commercials. Um, or she'd show up on, you know, various like kids shows or Nickelodeon or stuff like that and try to fit in with the younger generation and be the cool mm-hmm. older person. And it's like, it was so cringy. Like I, I couldn't stand it. Like you're, you're too old for this, Jamie Lee, get out of here. <laughs> 
I think she's been a bad influence on Michelle Yeoh. Just for the stuff that Michelle Yeoh has been putting out there recently. Yeah, I was not a fan of that. Well, it was so was it on her Instagram or was it on Twitter where she shared that article? I think well, there was one on I think there was an Instagram post that was being passed around Twitter where uh she talked about how she should get the Oscar over Kate Blanchett because Kate Blanchett already had hers. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Yeoh has been held down for the last decade and she needs the Oscar to get media roles yep. in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm sure those media roles are just going to come flooding in now. Did you see there was a commercial during the broadcast for a new Disney Plus show? Oh, I can't remember what it was called, but... uh it basically has all of the lead actors from everything, everywhere, all at once, because it's about Chinese people. And it's just like, okay, I guess the the Chinese uh, demographic is getting their due now, but do you have to cast the same people in everything that uh, applies to it? Everything, everywhere, <laughs> all at once. Because it was like, Oscar nom. It was before they all won their Oscars. It was like Oscar nominee Michelle Yeoh, Oscar nominee Kei Huey Kwan, and um, Stephanie Hsu all appeared in this brand new Disney Plus series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was because you, you retweeted something about that, right? Ah, uh, I don't. I was going to, uh, and then I didn't. I thought that's right. Well, I I must have just seen it on Twitter, but yeah, that was a little odd. It's also like Michelle Yeoh is... How old is she now? Well, I thought she got mad because they were offering her roles to play grandmothers. She was born in 1962. I mean, she's 60 years old. Yeah. It's like, you can play a grandmother. You fit the demo. So I didn't get the argument for that. Uh, I mean, first of all, that's a bullshit argument for, for winning an award. It's award should go to whoever the best person was. No, I thought she was uh, very deserving of the award compared to the other nominees. I wouldn't say anybody deserved it over her, but I don't like her. Well, I, I just don't like anyone basically campaigning for themselves. It's unbecoming. Right. Yeah. And at the expense of someone else, she did uh, delete it because it's technically a violation of the Academy's rules <laughs> not to... Well, it's not that you can promote yourself, but you can't do it at the expense of anyone else. None of the other nominees can be named. Like you can't. She named names. Well, yeah, it's it mentioned <laughs> Kate Bland, Blanchett's name is in that article or in that screen grab. Yeah. And that's a big no-no. And so I don't know if she's worried about her that being like a violation or making her disqualified. Like, I don't know the protocol for something like that because nobody fucking does it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but so yeah i wonder if like she would have left it up long. i mean she did post it so technically if there was a punishment it should have come down i'm not saying she shouldn't get the award i i, I just have no idea have no frame of reference for what the punishment is for something like that if it's just like a little strongly worded letter like yeah you can't do that i mean the votes were already in at that point well they said it was uh she posted it with hours left to go in the voting so technically mm-hmm. Still open. Voting runs for about a week, I think. So that is? I think so. You know, thereabouts. 
So yeah, right at the end. And then I think it was only up for an hour or two and she took it down. But um, yeah, I was like, you know, you didn't need that. Social media and the court of public opinion was already in her corner. Personally, I think Anna Darmus was probably the, the best of the nominees. Although Kate Blanchett was good. I just didn't care for that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't care uh, for Flan, but yeah, Anna Darmus was good. Because I think she won the I gotta look. Because I think she won the, you know, the Razzie for worst actress, which, you know, who gives a shit? But I was curious as to how many people have kind of won the Razzie, but also been nominated at the same time. That list has still got to be. She was really good in that movie, but there are times where her Cuban accent slipped in. <laughs> like just a little subtly. Yeah. And it's like, but it was okay. I like that movie. Yeah. Uh, but more, on that, more on that later, maybe. Ooh, teaser. Perhaps. That's a teaser. Won't be on my list, but. That Disney Plus series is called American Born Chinese. Okay. And it has Michelle Yeoh, Stephanie Hsu, uh, Kei Hui uh, Kwan, and um, James Hong are all in it. And his, then uh, have... his hair looked phenomenal last night, James Hong. I was wondering if that was, I mean, it can't be real, right? He's 94, but it looked good. Didn't look too fake. He's definitely got to be dyed, but yeah. Normally, I look out for that kind of stuff, but uh, I didn't uh, really pay close attention. So yeah, it's like, oh, let's just get all of the uh, everywhere, everything everywhere, all at once cast and put them in this. But I guess I don't know. It's got like all the other major. I, I suppose the rest of the cast is from Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. But like Michelle Yeoh is like, oh, I I don't get to do good movies, and it's like, well, she's in the new Transformers movie, she's in the next three Avatar movies. I don't know. I, don't, I thought it was pretty funny when everything everywhere started winning some awards, and everyone's getting behind Michelle Yeoh, and Jackie Chan posted something on social media somewhere like, "Congrats, Michelle," but uh, yeah. I turned down that role. <laughs> so I could have had it, but I said, nah. He said, they came to me first. I said, no, thanks. Uh, yeah, they, which is true. And then they rewrote it for, you know, a woman. But um, yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> but even like recently, like she was in, she did voice work in Paz of Fury and uh, Minions, The Rise of Guru, which came mm-hmm. out last year. She was in Shang-Chi. Um, she was in Gunpowder Milkshake, which I haven't seen, but I've seen people rave about when that was around. I think it was a straight to streaming, though. I mean, she became a huge star in China long before, you know, that's why she pretty much became a Bond girl. I'll yeah. always remember her as a Bond girl. She was a good Bond girl. You know, she said something to the effect of like she didn't take any roles for two years after that Bond movie because she didn't want to be typecast. Like, okay, so you turn down everything for two years and then you start to wonder why you didn't get any roles. It's like a lot of people get typecast, especially Bond girls of all races. But it's like, you know, a lot of people will, how do I want to put this? They they put up with the shit for, <laughs> for a while, for a couple right. of movies, you know? 
not to say that she has to do everything that comes her way, but you know, they're not giving you shit when you're a bond girl, you know, they're trying to strike when the iron's hot. So you're offered big roles, whether you like them or not. So, you know, another thing, but it's not like they're just, Oh, it's not like they were only giving her voice work or they're only giving her, you know, this right. or that. Like there were some options. Well, even after she was in Bond, she was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which mm-hmm. was a huge success. She was yeah. in Memoirs of, of a Gay Show, which was a huge critical success. Now, sure, uh, those are you know, all very Asian roles. And I'm not sure if she really wanted to be like a leading lady for like rom-coms or dramas. I don't know. Uh, she was in a movie called Far North, Sunshine. Uh, she was in the third Mummy movie, Babylon AD, Reign of Assassins, Kung Fu Panda 2. She was in Mechanic Resurrection. So, I mean, like, she wasn't necessarily in, like, small movies. It, just some of the movies she got cast in didn't do very well at the box office. Yeah. And, but, and like I what I was saying earlier, you know, it's plenty of actresses will take some roles just because they know like it's not a role they want to take but they think it'll lead to a better role down the road yeah and more opportunities it's not like she was hurting for work yeah (laughs) based on her and she continued to work you know in hong kong cinema forever pretty much every once in a while i'll see a film that she did that was obviously overseas i never heard of before like well she's still working (laughs) well she was in guardians of the galaxy 2 crazy rich asians (laughs) um (laughs) go figure of course she was on star trek discovery the tv series so i mean she's she's kind of turned it around as far as picking stuff that's successful versus being in ones that bombed but i don't know I thought it was a little uh, off-putting to, you know, hear her kind of talk about how uh, basically, like, she was looked over for however many years and all the Oscar validates that she uh, still has it or whatever. You know, she's still able to to act. Mm -hmm. Like, you're still getting cast in a lot of stuff. So I, I don't think the Oscar changes much about it. Maybe she can ask for more money now. I don't know. I mean, especially when you compare to Quan. <laughs> you know, after Encino Man, nothing for like 20 years almost. You know, he completely transitioned to uh, just being more of a behind the scenes guy doing fight choreography and all that. Now, at the time, I, I thought that that's what he wanted to do. Because, you know, every every so often, you, you know this as well as anybody. Uh, I'm sure you saw it. Uh, on vh1 they'll do where are they now <laughs> yeah you know, cast of the goonies or a short round from temple of doom oh he's been working with choreography on these big hollywood movies you know he's made the transition to behind the camera now it, you know they didn't do a lot of interviews at the time with him like oh i hate doing this i want to be in front of camera again you know but right that's certainly what he's been saying over the past year or so. So I can see it definitely um, being more of an issue for Quan than Michelle Yeoh over the past 20 years, especially from him 
being a child actor to nothing. You know, it's Yo was huge in Chinese cinema. Right. And made, made the crossover to the U.S. internationally with, with Bond. So it was kind of like, you know, she was always working. Always. I never forgot about her. She's one of the better Bond girls. And even like I, I wasn't that familiar with her until, you know, she started getting all the press now. But now, I started watching all these movies, and it's like, oh, Michelle Yeoh's in that. Oh, Michelle mm-hmm. Yeoh's in that one too. She's oh, there she is again. You know, I just, yeah. I, I really just coincidentally liked... watched like four movies that she was in in the last <laughs> couple months. I really liked Crouching Tiger when I was a kid, so I was all about the yo. I, I just saw that in the theater last month, and. uh I still don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not I for me. I, I haven't seen it in almost 20 years. The way you're fighting is dumb. Actually, it has probably been 20 years since I've seen it. Yeah, I think it was the 20th. Anniversary. Well, no, it was like it came out in 2000. but So it's like the 23rd anniversary. <laughs> I don't know why they, they re-released it for some reason. Well, I never watched the sequel that came out a few years ago, but. Probably more like seven years ago now, I bet. You know who was in that? Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> <laughs> of course she was. <laughs> I didn't like the way you're fighting. I thought it was dumb. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Encino Man, Brendan Fraser up there getting his Oscar. Blubbering like a whale. He used that whale metaphor more than I expected. He what? He used the whale metaphor more than I expected in this speech. (laughs) (laughs) That was a bit much. Yeah. Did you finally see that? Did you see? No. Did you get beyond the first couple minutes? (laughs) I haven't watched it yet. No. I will someday, but not in a rush to see it. But yeah, I was happy for him. I was happy for all the winners, pretty much. Obviously, I didn't want everything everywhere to win Best Picture. But I expected no. it, so it wasn't a surprise. Yeah, everybody hyped it up. It's uh when it came out and like every other person was saying it was the best movie that was ever made. You knew it was uh, you know, gonna get the hype train behind it. Yeah. Uh we mentioned earlier how Jimmy Kimmel kind of reined in his political his political jokes and uh you know every, all the recipients kind of did as well in their speeches but i gotta say this is one of the most boring oscars i've ever seen i think so milk toast uh, everything was just you could tell that they were worried after the slapping last year although i did uh really like that joke from kimmel about halfway through and he's like kind of like How's everyone doing? You know, you, you know, it's, it's starting to get long, you know, and he's like, yeah. I okay. So it makes you kind of wish the sl- miss the slapping, doesn't it? <laughs> that was pretty good. He did have a couple, uh, he had more jokes that I laughed at than I expected to. Yeah. Yeah. But I, everything was really safe though. That's the thing. Yeah. And I don't know who the hell was directing running all the cameras, switching the cameras. But it looked just terrible. It was the worst looking Oscars I've seen with the camera angles. And nobody knew when to switch to which camera. 
nobody's looking in the right one. It was like nobody had rehearsed with the the musical acts. There's a couple of times where Lady Gaga just disappears from the screen and there's just <laughs> nothing. And it's like, what is going on here? Yeah. Nobody knows what anyone else is doing. And there was a lot of, I don't know, there's just these bizarre camera angles where it was kind of in between an extreme close-up and a regular close-up and it was at a slight angle. And it just, there were certain things that, you know, they could tell they didn't know what they were doing when they were switching cameras. It was just bizarre. Did you enjoy all the musical performances? I can't believe they nominated a song from a movie that nobody saw where the lyrics are just give yourself some applause. You're worth it. Repeat it over and over again. Is that the, uh, that was the first one they performed from tell like a woman. Oh yeah. I didn't know what that was like. What is this? (laughs) Like nobody saw that. I looked it up on Letterboxd. Nobody I follow saw it. Mm -hmm. So, and like, I follow some people who see like everything. So, um, but I don't even know if that came out in theaters. I never heard of it until it got nominated for best song. Um, I don't even think you could find it to rent on demand. Yeah. But uh, I thought, how could you not find a better song than that? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the most basic, like, uh, you know, uh, self-affirming uh, song that you could find. And it's like so stereotypical that it's in a movie about women telling women's stories. <laughs> it's like, give yourself some applause. You're worth it. <laughs> like only a woman would say that. <laughs> Speaking of women and women talking, I thought maybe the biggest surprise of the night was that winning for best adapted screenplay over All Quiet on the Western Front. I would have figured, you know, it's yeah, nominated for best picture. It's Pretty famous novel. One best international. Times. It's shockingly yeah. one best international picture. <laughs> yeah. Could you believe it? Yeah. There's just... The one that's nominated for best picture. <laughs> they shouldn't even nominate it for best international if it's going to be in the best picture category. Yeah. Because that's not fair to the rest of them. Because you're basically saying who wins it, you know, before the, the thing even starts. But anyways, women talking. <laughs> so that got a little recognition. Did you see that one? No. So at the beginning of women talking, there's a title card that says, this is a work of female imagination. And when you think, when you hear the words, this is a, a work of imagination, you think, like it's going to be a, a fantasy of some sort, or it's going to be whimsical. You're going to hear Gene Wilder singing, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah. Apparently, the the female imagination thinks about things like a secluded village, cut off from society, where all the men constantly are raping all the women, uh, and also giving them horse tranquilizers. And then telling them that it was a demon and the women believe it until they finally catch one of the guys in the act. And then for some reason, 
uh, well, somehow, some way, the guy who's caught in the act gets taken to the town by the police. And for some reason, every man in the village has to go into kind of, or to, to go to, into town to try to bail him out. And so, of course, the women get together and talk for a whole day about whether they're going to leave, fight back, or just continue living their lives the way they have been. And that is the work of the female imagination. That is the extent of their imagination. So you really liked the picture. <laughs> I'm sure you saw my letterboxd review about that. I know I did. I can't remember who you gave it. <laughs> I know yeah. it wasn't good. Well, I gave it one and a half stars. So it's not a complete a, train. It's not a never. It's a very much a last resort. But uh, let's see if I can find my review of it. I wrote, the movie starts with a title card saying it is a work of female imagination. Oh, boy. <laughs> that wasn't like an, oh, boy, excited. <laughs> it was a, it's like, oh, oh brother. Boy, dot, dot, dot. I couldn't even put into words my thoughts on that one. <laughs> but like I said, like, that is what females are imagining. Like, that's their imagination is being stuck in a village and being raped constantly with no way out and then just talking about it. Okay. I, don't know. <laughs> I feel like men have more vivid imaginations and that's why they get nominated for stuff like Best Director. <laughs> I joke. That's a joke. Well, so obviously, <laughs> uh, you know, the women have been underrepresented in the directing category for many years. But I it really annoys me when all these people like, after 95 years, there's only been three women nominated. I'm like, well, they've only been directing for like 20. So well, like, I, let's be real. Don't bring up the 95 years. If it does, it's like saying, you know, the bringing up all the years that black people didn't play baseball. And then like, <laughs> I can't believe for 120 years. There's only this many people in the Hall of Fame. It's like, well, they didn't play for 50 years. They yeah. weren't allowed. <laughs> now, obviously, that's a problem. And the it's always going to be, uh, what can I say? They're going to be behind the times. They're, you know, they're starting out behind us because the infrastructure isn't set up. So people yeah, talk, I saw. You know, the people of color being nominated for different things, the women in directing. It's like, obviously, they're not as many are directing as, as, as males or white people. So obviously there's not going to be as many nominated. I saw Patty Mayonnaise complaining about there's not any uh, women directors nominated this year and she's over it, <laughs> but she doesn't suggest anyone who could have been nominated this year. Like, okay. So we have the five nominees. Oh, okay. Name, name one female director that you would nominate over the five nominees. And they, they don't, they don't give or give examples like that. Like, I don't know who you want to nominate over these other guys. Uh, I suppose you could throw Sarah Pauly in there. Cause she got her movie nominated for best picture and one best adapted screenplay. But I don't know. Like if you're not going to pick anybody else <laughs> to replace them. And I get like there's there's fewer movies directed by women, but there's still plenty of movies directed by women to choose from. 
if you want to make a choice. What about Elizabeth Banks? Huh? Well, maybe Cocaine Bear didn't make it out before January 1st. No, yeah, Cocaine Bear is a 2023. But obviously there's underrepresentation in the women and people of color, basically in all roles in Hollywood. But people always focus on the awards. They never focus on the front end. They're always looking at the back end and going, what the hell? Well, what's the deal? Like everyone's getting an equal share of the roles and the parts. Right. No, I, obviously there's also people that complain about that, but it's always a minority. But I mean, there's, there's more and more every year. Uh, movies directed by women and, uh, you know, I don't know how well all of them do at the box office, but I mean, I'm sure you, you could just name off a couple. You know, if, if this is the the battle you want to fight, I would think you could name a, a one or two women directors you would nominate, you know, instead of just throwing your hands up and saying, well, I guess uh, we could give up on the Oscars now. Of course, Patty Mayonnaise herself didn't direct anything last year. She's too busy pleasing Doug. <laughs> Getting kicked off of Star Wars. Yeah. I think she Ru- sued Ruining Wonder Woman. Did she sue over that? I forget. I don't know. I don't think so. Not, well, I don't know. That's or pretty recent. Kevin, Kevin Feige sued, I think. One of them did. I don't remember. Really? I think. Maybe I'm making that up. Maybe somebody was speculating. Huh. But yeah, I mean, it's always, you know, every year Oscar is so white. It's like, well, technically, if there's one black man nominated for best actor, then that's overrepresentation because there is, <laughs> they don't make up 20% of the population. So, well, if Glad had their way, it'd be 50% LGBT. Mm hmm. Well, then they want to get rid of the gendered categories. And it's like, so there's not enough women directors nominated. In the ungendered category of best director. How many women do you think are going to be nominated in the ungendered best actor category? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even uh, uh, Jamie Lee, obviously a, a big friend of the community, and she has a, a trans daughter. She was talking about that backstage. You know, even she said that, you know, I don't want to get rid of the, the gendered categories because I feel like that's going to take opportunities away from women, which it is. Yeah. So it's going to happen. But uh, we'll see if they ever change it. But it's all in the name of progress. Mm-hmm. Well, then <laughs> once, they, once they change it, anytime a man wins. We have to erase women to progress uh, <laughs> our society. <laughs> uh, That's something a turf would say. <laughs> uh, We're not a lot of opinions on that issue, so <laughs> take it for what you what you want. I mean, my opinion is that there's not enough women directing. There's not enough roles for people of color. So obviously they're going to be underrepresented when award season comes around. But people act surprised. Like out of the, you know, five female directors you can name, why aren't they nominated? It's like, you only know five. (laughs) I know of 52 men that directed a film this year. And 47 of them <laughs> were not nominated. Yeah, I don't even know. Like, I saw a shit ton of 
movies in 2022. Mm-hmm. Like 130. It was way too many. I couldn't tell you how many were now uh, directed by women, but I tell you, there's I got a top 10, and then I got about maybe 12 that I had uh, that I rated four or four and a half stars on Letterboxd. And then maybe another 20 that I rated three or higher. And uh, about 80 or 90 that I rated below three stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's like 90 last resorts out of 130. Did you see that movie that uh, is his name? David Tyree Henry. Is that his name from Bullet Train? I saw Bullet Train. But that guy, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. No, that was an Apple movie. I don't have Apple. Okay, I was curious. So I didn't, I didn't see Two Leslie either. That the, Brian uh, Tyree Henry. Or Brian, okay. Yes. That one I didn't see, and I didn't see Two Leslie. Okay. There's plenty I didn't see. But, uh, yeah, um, I don't think there's anything left to say about the Oscars. Oscars so Asian. <laughs> yeah, they make up what? Uh four percent of the population something like that well in all the awards they won maybe maybe in this continent well that's what i'm talking about in the u.s it's a u.s award right i saw on twitter um hans from low res's podcast he uh he said the oscars really took that hashtag stop asian hate seriously this year (laughs) sure did really took it to the extreme uh we could maybe talk a little more about everything everywhere all at once later on and why we both didn't like it but um yeah uh who should go first you you choose you won the the pick contest i'll let you choose who goes first i'll i'll go first i'll let you have the final say on the number one film of the year I have a feeling it's not going to be on my list, or maybe it will. We'll I have see. a feeling you'll knock it off like in the first two. But go ahead. Okay, well, number 10 on my list of favorite films from 2022, Armageddon Time. Not on my list. I will also say that I thought that this year overall was a pretty weak year. Um. I mean, it's it's kind of been weird since COVID. Obviously, 2020 doesn't even really count. 2021 was was okay just because everything was delayed from 2020, kind of. Yeah. Certain things. That it, so there was a decent crop to pick from. But last few years, I mean, my favorite last year was the Eyes of Tammy Faye. And in a normal year, I think that probably would have been maybe number three, number four on my list. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of a weaker year. This Armageddon time usually wouldn't make my list to be an honorable mention at best. But well, I think you should qualify that you didn't watch too many new movies those past year, though, right? Yeah. Well, I, I did watch 40. Watched 40, so that's over 10. <laughs> it's over 10. So we have a whole different sample size to pull from mm-hmm. you and me. So I don't know, maybe after... After we uh we're done with this, we'll have a couple of uh maybe challenges that I can give you yeah. in the coming months. 
I will say that there's two movies that I really wanted to see. I think probably would have made my list, but I didn't get a chance. It was All Quiet on the Western Front. Really like to see that still. And Decision to Leave, which is Park Chan-wook's new film. And I love The Handmaiden. So I never saw Decision to Leave. It played in the theaters around here, but I just dismissed it. And then months later, everybody was just raving about it. Mm-hmm. So oh, boy. Same thing with RRR, mm-hmm. uh, which sucked. So, but I didn't get around to seeing Decision to Leave. Yeah, I really like Wook's work. So, looking forward to that. I was surprised it wasn't nominated. Yeah. But, you know, uh, Handmaiden wasn't nominated for too much, I don't think, if I recall. Well, just off the, the buzz it got once it got on. I don't know if it was on streaming somewhere or if it was just VOD, but once it got online, like people were just buzzing about it. Yeah. Anyways, Armageddon Time. Directed by James Gray, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, Banks Rapetta, Jalen Webb, Anthony Hopkins, Synopsis, a deeply personal coming-of-age story about the strength of family and the generational generational pursuit of the American dream. Written and directed by James Gray, it's a little semi-autobiographical, um, kind of based off of his uh, coming up in New York in the early 80s. So when it takes place, it's an early 80s t- uh, set uh, film. I just uh, really like the performances in here. Anthony Hopkins was a delight. He's getting up there in age too. He's not going to be around all that much longer. And uh, he did a bunch to... of movies this past year. Like he keeps popping up and stuff. Yeah, he's really churning them out. Actually, I saw a list of uh, Oscar firsts or history making Oscars, and uh, they put him on there as the first openly autistic actor to win an Oscar. Hopkins. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't even know he was autistic. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't either. I forget when they said he came out with his diagnosis or whatever, but I think it was well after he won his Oscar. Like sure. it was in the two thousands or twenty tens or something. Yeah. Armageddon time. The film is a you know it's a tad bit preachy, but I thought it fit for the time period, and I thought it was a lot of fun hanging out with those two kids, getting into mischief. They had a nice friendship and camaraderie. Nice little movie. Feel good story. So yeah, that was my number 10. I thought a lot of the characters were very stereotypical. Yeah. <laughs> but they're based on real people, so who knows? Yeah. It's the thing. It's like, well, like I said, it's it's a bit preachy, but I'm like, well, I, I mean, it kind of fits, uh, you know, the, the time frame it was in. At least the t- time frame as we know it through cinema. Well, I think some of it was really heavy-handed, yeah. but I don't know. Like, having not seen nearly enough movies to make like a comprehensive top ten, I can see why it slipped into yeah. your list. That and usually uh, movies that are kind of based off of real life, I always give more of a a leash to, with in regards to you know, heavy-handedness or um, you know being preachy or whatnot. Like, well, it's supposedly happened so 
Right. <laughs> I just remember there was an elderly couple that sat in my seat in the theater. <laughs> I was kind of pissed about it. I didn't make the move. They were the only one in there when I got there, and I think only two other people came in. Give me so the like, seat, you old bag. <laughs> it was like two two old people. Yeah, they must have been at least in their late seventies or eighties, and they had the footrests up and blankets on and stuff. And like, just stay there. Just don't bother. Um. Anyways, my number ten is something in the dirt. Haven't heard of it. Uh, directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and it also stars both of them. And the synopsis is, Maverick filmmaking duo Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead offer up a twisted reflection of our paranoid times in this inventive mix of buddy comedy and sci-fi thriller. That's not much of a synopsis. That's more of a tagline. Um, so yeah, this is a kind of a I don't know if you call it an indie movie. Kind of, kind of feels that way. Kind of a low budget thing. Basically, a guy he moves into a, an apartment that's been empty for over ten years, and uh, when he moves in, he meets a uh, another tenant in the building who's recently divorced. And uh, the formerly empty apartment starts exhibiting some supernatural phenomenon. And so these two guys decide they're going to make a documentary about it. And so it's partly about them making the documentary. And then there's some question as to the validity of what their documentary is about. But Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly about the uh, relationship between the two uh, you know they otherwise be lonely guys but they're they found a common interest and they bond over it and um i gotta say i i felt a little um what do i want to say i felt seen no <laughs> i i felt like i could relate to that a little bit because i feel like you and me doing the podcast, like we're not super close friends, but like we do the podcast and we talk about movies. We could talk about movies all day, mm-hmm. talk about other stuff. And it's like pulling teeth sometimes. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you heard Eric guest hosting on my old Positively Wolfie podcast, you might you might have noticed. Um, <laughs> but we talk about movies, we go on for hours. And uh, so I felt like I could relate a little bit, like. Two guys who maybe wouldn't necessarily be friends otherwise kind of find a common interest and bond over it and build a friendship. And there's some weird shit that goes on in it. And there's some funny stuff. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a weird little movie, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Might have to something, check that one out. Something in the dirt. Yes. You know, to, to defend myself a little bit, you know, I, I thought that concept of your show is i thought you wanted me to stay more focused on the topic and not go off into tangents and then like i think the last time i did your show you're like no that's that's what i want and why you want us to go into tangents i was like oh so the last two episodes i was trying to focus keep it you know focused right on the on the story we were talking yeah. about i was like that's the opposite of what i want <laughs> it would have helped if i knew that <laughs> going in obviously, obviously you haven't listened to this show 
<laughs> I listen to them. Not every episode, but anyways, it's it's not. I didn't want to make you feel bad about it, <laughs> but I was trying to make an analogy, right? We're yeah. we're movie guys. We talk about movies. <laughs> we can talk about movies all day. Another thing I, I guess I wanted to bring up though about our, my list is I did not want to include documentaries. Because if we did, I the one or two might would would definitely make my list. I wanted it to be just narrative features. Now, if you did include a documentary, that's fine. I but, I didn't. I had one that was close. I had one that's uh honorable mention. Um but uh it's not on my top ten. I, I saw one called I think it was called the The Sound of 007. It's about all the music with the with the Bond films over the years, history of it, everything. Um, I loved it, uh, but I didn't put it on my list. I just wanted to stick to narrative features. And there was another documentary I saw too. I forgot which one that I would have put on my list. But anywho, yeah, yeah, Fire of Love almost made my list. Okay, yeah, and that one was Oscar nominated. Um, it's about the Vulcan uh, volcanologists, the the couple that studied volcanoes up close. Mm-hmm. She looks spectacular in the in the theater. Well, my number nine film, Father Stew. Not on my list. Directed by Mel Gibson's main squeeze, Rosalind Ross. <laughs> Starring Mark Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, Jackie Weaver, Teresa Ruiz, Malcolm McDowell, Cody Fern. Aaron Moten. So that's the original or the re-release? PG-13 version. <laughs> the R, R version. <laughs> the only version. Synopsis follows the life of Father Stuart Long, a boxer-turned-priest who inspired countless people during his journey from self-destruction to redemption. So this was a passion project for Marky Mark, and I thought that really shone through. Obviously, uh, more so over the past couple of years, he's really been upfront about his faith and questioning some of the things he's done in his career. And I don't know, maybe all the hate crimes that he did before he made it big. <laughs> so he wasn't invited to the Oscars <laughs> this year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not sure if that, uh, yeah, he beat up an Asian man when he was a teenager and I think he blinded him. Not sure if he stayed blind or what the deal was, but I think in one eye. I think he blinded one eye. And there's also an incident, I think, with some young uh, African American youths when he was also a kid. But um, yeah, he's moved on to uh, <laughs> greener pastures. He's cleaned up his life since the Calvin Klein days, his good vibration days. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big man of faith nowadays, and um, it was nice to see Mel Gibson in this film. Obviously, he's big in the he's a big man of faith as well. He's got his second Passion of the Christ film coming out sometime. I mean, you could really tell that Wahlberg really cared a lot about this character and the story and getting it right and telling it right. Because I've seen some some Marky Mark films from the past few years, and he has just been god awful in them. But he was pretty good in here. Joe Bell. Well, uh, no, I didn't watch that one. 
I'm thinking more uh, Infinite, which, you know, maybe you could just chalk that up to it being an Antoine Fuqua movie, but. <laughs> but didn't he, didn't he direct Training Day? <laughs> yeah, he sure did. <laughs> New on 4K. On Zolly's shelf. Joe Bell was the movie where Mark Wahlberg played a dad that bullies his uh, gay son to suicide. And then he goes on a guilt trip walking across country. <laughs> Should have been called the guilt trip, but stupid Seth Rogen and who's it? Uh, Meryl Streep had already used that title. Or Barbara Streisand? Was it Streisand? I've read one of those two. Yeah. But he puts a lot of effort into this and I thought it shone through. Very inspirational story. I didn't, didn't really know much about it going in. I think that helps, but isn't necessary. It's always a pleasure to see Malcolm McDowell. So ironic that he played a priest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A good cast of characters. The performances are great. Truly inspirational story. And uh, I thought Wahlberg's passion shone through. So yeah, Father Stu, my number nine. All right. My number nine, Hatching. Directed by Hannah Bergholm. Oh, I don't know if I can pronounce any of these names. <laughs> Starring Siri uh, Sola Lina, Sophia Heikila, Yanni Volanen. I don't know. Um, it's a foreign film. <laughs> it's um, it's it's Finnish, so it's from Finland. Uh, synopsis, a young gymnast who tries desperately to please her demanding mother discovers a strange egg. She hides it and keeps it warm, but when it hatches, what emerges shocks them all. This is a uh, metaphor. It's a visual metaphor for a lot of stuff. Trauma. It's a trauma movie. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's it's such an unusual movie and the uh the special effects are fantastic mm. um it just seems like a, a very like like it shouldn't be as good as it is um I, I i really don't know how best to describe it because it's it's unlike anything i've ever seen before but um yeah i, I thought it was original and uh, the special effects are fantastic and you know, there's a lot of tension in it. There's some humor in it. There's, like, like I said, the overarching thing is just a metaphor um, for growing up and going through puberty and taking on your parents' expectations and things like that. Um, but I would highly recommend it. Hatching. All right. So far, no crossover. And I know we're not going to get any crossover with my number eight, which is The Black Phone. Not on my list. Directed by Scott Derrickson, starring Mason Thames. Scott Derrickson, who's that? Stephen King's son. Hmm? Is that not Stephen King's son? No, is it? I think Hunter uh, pointed out that the mask that Ethan Hunt... Um, Ethan Hunt. Ethan, uh, <laughs> Ethan Hawke wears... Looks an awful lot like Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, definitely. It's creep show days. It's maximum overdrive days. 
I think it's somewhat obvious too if you've seen that movie, because it feels very Stephen Kingy. Yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you describe it. No, that's a, that's an apt description. Rounding out the cast: Madeline McGraw, Ethan Hawke, Jeremy Davies, E. Roger Mitchell. That's enough for the cast. It is kind of a smaller cast. After being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. So yeah, it has that supernatural element, much like a Stephen King story usually does, even his dramas, <laughs> The Green Mile. So yeah, with this, uh, I like the aesthetic a lot. I will say that um, I was distracted throughout the entire movie that uh, because the main kid, Mason Thames, Thames, spelled like the river Thames, hmm. he looks exactly like Chris Mulkey. He's a dead ringer for him. He looks like Chris Mulkey at 13 years old. Now, you might be trying to figure out in your head, no, who the hell is Chris Mulkey? You shouldn't be saying that because he's a local legend. Oh, yeah? Minnesota boy. Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. He was in Twin Peaks. He was in First Blood. He was in, um, here, I'll show you picture. The, the name sounds familiar. I just can't place it. Don't you think he looks a lot like him? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's like, God, that looks just like Chris Mulkey. Speaking of which, I've stumbled up, you know, I've compiled a big list of Minnesota movies. And there's a couple uh, independent ones from the 80s and late 70s that Mulkey was in. He was the, the main star, or the the lead actor, I should say. It wasn't really a star when it's a known actor at a, you know, leading a production that's on a shoestring budget in Minnesota. <laughs> but yeah, I really want to, Purple Haze is one. I think another one, one, another one is called Petty Rocks. Because um, they were interviewing the director, Purple Haze, a couple other things, because he's a still hangs out or he still lives here and he, he's an Academy member because they were talking to him about voting and whatnot, his process and everything. But um, yeah, Moki was his lead actor in a lot of those early uh, films from the 70s and 80s coming out of Minnesota. So I really like to check those out. They're kind of hard to to find. Like they won some awards and they were at Sundance and things like that. So they're semi-known. But uh, anyways, back to the black phone. I like the aesthetic. Uh, I do like the I like the, the story with the kids, com uh, the camaraderie with the brother and sister. I thought Jeremy Davies was a terrific as the abusive alcoholic parent. It was almost too good. <laughs> yeah. It was almost too good at whipping little girls with belts. Yeah. I was like, well, I've seen you in many, many films. That was this the scariest is... scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like He was scarier than the killer. <laughs> this was the first time I was kind of blown away by, you know, his, his role, his acting. Not that he was ever bad or noticeably bad or anything before, but walked away from this movie thinking like, damn, he should, he should be doing more, have some bigger roles. But um, yeah, I like the aesthetic. I, I kind of like the idea of the disconnected phone, 
getting the calls from the previous victims. There is a, a bit of a turn your brain off or a suspension of disbelief in regards to um, the kid in the basement and what he's allowed to do. He's pretty much just not watched ever. Yeah. He's left to his own devices down there. He can just, I mean, I, he's locked in the basement, but there's like stuff you can do and there's stuff that he does <laughs> while the killer is off doing fuck all. At times the killer leaves the door unlocked and he, he tries to bait the kid to come upstairs. And like, that's when, cause he's like, I can't punish you unless you're a bad boy. Yeah. And apparently the only way to do that is by trying to escape mm-hmm. through the basement door up the steps and then out the, the house. Yeah. But like, he doesn't watch him otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I thought Ethan Hawke was really good. I did like that mask. Thought it was funny that they call him the grabber. <laughs> uh, pretty enjoyable uh, horror film. This is another one. This is number eight on my list. And most of the years, my eight, nine, ten probably would not be on my list. But here we are. I did enjoy it. So worthy of number eight, 2022, the black phone. I, I will. I will also add that I didn't. I really like the ending. Some people might say it's a little too sentimental or I don't know what you'd call it. Kind of the catharsis with the, with the young boy at school. What he had to overcome with the, not just the, the horrors in the basement, but the, the horrors at school with the bullies and whatnot. Yeah. Now, mind you, the black phone was the movie I saw when I had to share a movie. Uh, Love seat. Two seater yeah. with, uh, with a guy who's about 450 pounds. So you and Frazier were watching the black phone together. <laughs> it was me and the whale. Oh, wait, wait, oh, wait. Frazier's supposed to be 600 pounds, isn't he? I forget. Is it, is it 400 or 600? Oh, he's probably closer to the 600. Okay. Well, I don't know if they say in the movie, but uh, he's, he's immobile for the most part. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that was one category you won over me last night with the uh, makeup and hairstyling like i it's it's kind of the obvious choice but i'm like it's the only one like you think about uh, i think i picked elvis because it's makeup and hairstyling yeah and they do a little bit of the fat stuff with him with austin butler not much but they did the same thing with colonel tom parker tom hanks now i would say the brendan fraser's makeup is a little better than tom hanks's but with the hairstyles and the meticulous detail they have and all those scenes with all the, you know, it's a period piece. So right. Everyone's got to be getting their hair done a certain way. and Everyone's got to have the right makeup versus the whale. It's everyone's focusing on just Brendan Fraser and making that fat suit perfect. So I was like, God, they, well, they got to give it to Elvis or, or somebody else. But yeah, I mean that what they did with Brendan Fraser was incredible. Well, it was weird too. Cause they kind of said that, it was all digital. So it's like, was it an actual fat suit or did they just digitally do it? Like, is that, is that makeup or is that visual effects? <laughs> I mean, I saw all the, the fat suits, you know, they took you through a little bit of the process, but really Terrifier 2 should have won probably both of those categories. Oh, yeah. Anyways, my number eight. Now, I asked you about this when I saw it, if it counted, 
And uh, we're going to count it as 2022 because it got an, just under the wire. A very limited release on December 30th. Okay. <laughs> it's a man called Otto. Yeah, it was uh, it was eligible for Oscars. So I'm surprised it didn't get more love. And so I believe that since COVID, they are still kind of relaxed in their rules and that you can come out maybe even a couple of weeks into January. I'm not sure if they changed it back yet. You might be eligible a week or two into January. I was trying to find the eligibility requirements and like they don't post them online. Like I couldn't find them anywhere. Mm. Like you would think they'd have it on their website. Couldn't find yeah. it. <laughs> they'd go to the museum, find out the process. <laughs> would well, be like it has to be it has to have come out in the eligibility window. Okay, what's that? Well, it has to be eligible to be picked for nomination. Yeah, yeah, but what's the eligibility window? It has to come out in the eligibility window. <laughs> You're not helping. It was so irritating, that segment that I was talking about earlier about the museum. It's like, I would love to go to that Academy Museum, see memorabilia, learn about history and things like that. But it's like, seeing an eight minute segment on a theme park. It's like, I just want to go there. I don't want to be, I don't want to see highlights from, especially a museum like that. You know, there's rides. You can like, there's movement. There's that. Yeah. You know, you can almost, oh, that'd be kind of cool to visualize me going on that ride. But this is just a museum. People walking through it and <laughs> I'm telling you what you have. So that segment should have been some sketch or something. Well, they got to advertise it because that's how they get their money. Remember when uh, Kimmel brought the audience, a bunch of celebrities into uh, that movie next that was uh, playing next door. Remember that a few years Vaguely. ago. I, I remember there was one where he brought the audience into the Oscar. Mm. Oh yeah, that that was like a pizza delivery dude or something. Well, they had like a tour bus or something. Oh yeah, tour. They bus, stopped yeah. outside the theater and he he brought them all in and then like they sat on the. The laps of the front row celebrities or something. Yeah, basically. I they, they, they took, took a selfie. I can't remember. They took a bunch of celebrities to go hand out candy next door at a theater. There was some advanced screen before. I think it was a wrinkle in time. But um, yeah, they should have done some sketch like that. I feel like not just brought the show to a grinding halt talking about the Academy and their museum after we had just seen it. A couple years ago. Well, I think they've been doing it every year, haven't they? Because it's like... Since that Wanda Sykes thing? Because, uh, like I said, that's how they get their money. They need to get people in there. And uh, that's the way they get the word out. I can't imagine that they're hard up for people attending that, that museum. They put that TCM host in charge of curating it or whatever. Okay. Osborne, before he kicked the bucket... <laughs> No, it's the, the African-American lady with the shaved head. Mm, I don't know that one. Well, she was on the thing last night. She's okay. like the president and director or whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought that Asian lady was the... She's was the she... president of the Academy. But then the, the woman from TCM actually like runs the museum. Okay. Or she like picks out the exhibits and stuff. Anyways, a man called Otto. 
So he said, barely made the cut. I saw it in January, but it technically came out in December. Directed by Mark Forster, starring Tom Hanks. And um, who's the other main character? God, these are all in weird order. Mariana Trevino. Those are the two main characters. Synopsis. Otto is a grump who's given up on life following the loss of his wife and wants to end it all. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> when a young family moves in nearby, he meets his match in, a, in quick-witted Marisol, or Marisol, uh, leading to a friendship that will turn his world around. So yeah, Tom Hanks kind of does his uh, Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino impression. Okay. As a uh, the grump who, uh, you know, kind of can't stand being around other people and nobody can do anything right. So he's always got to do it for him. And, you know, his wife died. And so he's, uh, he's getting th- and then he, he gets forced into retirement at his job. And so he's got nothing to live for. So, anyways, he meets these new neighbors and he kind of, through his relationship with them, uh, kind of comes out of a shell and realizes there's, there's more to live for. Mm-hmm. Very heartwarming. Um, throughout the movie, they do flashbacks of how he and his wife met and uh, how their relationship developed and major moments. Uh, so it was like up a little bit, um, but it's not like all the beginning. It's like throughout the movie. Um, sure. And um, the younger Otto is played by. One of Tom's sons, not Chet, Colin. not Colin. <laughs> it's a different one. Is it the one that's always in trouble? That not Chet. Oh, oh, that's Chet. Okay, Chet is the one who. Uh, it's kind of a bro, right? White boy summer or whatever was his thing. <laughs> Truman Hanks is yeah, uh, a bro or a, a bra, bra. Creed 3 set the record for most bra. Most uses the word bra mm. in a movie. Call up Guinness. <laughs> I swear to God. Anyways, so it, that's kind of cool. And uh, those uh, those scenes really do a lot to kind of soften the auto character and become, make him more sympathetic. And um, like even as the, the grump. You can kind of see like he's he's really a good guy, and um, I uh, you know, it hit me in the feels a little bit. It's a little bit of a tearjerker, and uh, I gotta say, it was uh, I was pleasantly surprised at how good it actually is, and it's genuinely funny. There's a lot of funny moments in it, um, right. for how kind of serious and heavy some of the stuff can get. So you get kind of like the the full spectrum of of emotions but uh yeah that's my number eight uh a man called Otto. okay my number seven the fablemans not on my list directed and written by steven spielberg also written by tony kushner starring michelle williams gabriel labelle paul dano Judd Hirsch, Seth Rogen, Mateo Zorian, Kivi Karsten, 
probably shouldn't mention the cameo. Which would cameo? be famous director. Oh. Or I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. But anywho, the synopsis is growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, young Sam Sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. So uh, I really like this film. I th thought I was actually going to like it even more. I think I was slightly disappointed at how much I liked it. <laughs> um, it's semi-autobiographical, of course. They say it's the most personal Spielberg film, and it probably is. Although you feel like you've seen, almost like he's done a movie like this before, you know? <laughs> I mean, Super 8 uh, wasn't Spielberg per se. I think he was like a producer on it, because I think that's a J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams trying to be a Spielberg. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm a sucker for a good, you know, meta film. Love the power of cinema. I get romantic when I feel about the power of a film and all that. God, uh, they're going to play that line to death. <laughs> Movies are dreams that you'll never forget. <laughs> they played that about a hundred times on the Oscars. Yeah, they did. Every commercial. Movies are like dreams that you never forget. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I liked all the performances in here, except for Seth Rogen. I thought he was not good. It could have been played by most anyone besides Seth Rogen. So he doesn't play a good guy either. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's kind of a jerk. But what um, Paul Dano? Yeah, I didn't know his name good. was pronounced Dano. I thought it was Dano. Yeah, I kind of thought so too. But he's you always good. Do you know his character was based on the I'm a pc guy i'm a what i'm a pc he's he's based on the i'm a pc guy like justin long or what? <laughs> no justin long was an apple oh the pc was the nerd of the glasses guy <laughs> right you, you don't see the resemblance <laughs> a little bit it's probably working for ibm right do they ever say who he's working for i think i i think he was going to ibm was, yeah, that's uh, what it seems was like. like the goal. But he was a, like a computer guy for sure. Yeah, some sort of an engineer. <laughs> that's the first thing I thought when I saw him in, in that character. Like, mm -hmm. I know his dad was the I'm a PC guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's about as entertaining too. I really like all the the filmmaking aspects of this movie. Uh, I really enjoy watching the process and all that. You know, makes me makes me feel like, hey, if I was younger, I could do it myself. <laughs> Not now. Never too late. It's never it too is, late to start. It is never too late, but don't have time right now. I mean, Olivia Coleman is a sex symbol, and she's almost <laughs> fifty. She's only been acting for like five years. Hey, more on that later. Okay, save it for later. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> was that a sort so of a save, spoiler? Save that Olivia Coleman chatter <laughs> for later. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> so yeah i i thought this would uh have a chance to maybe be my favorite of the year not so much but still uh still a great film i love the cameo at the end famous director that young sammy fable meets who's 
portrayed by another very famous director and one of my favorites. So that scene kind of stole the show for me. But uh, I felt like the the movie kind of climaxed early and the climax wasn't so much of a climax, I guess. Right. Like it felt like the last 25 minutes, I guess, felt like an epilogue. And I was expecting kind of a climax and kind of like a big ending. Wanted a big, uh, big sweeping resolution, I guess. It's that a little depressing there too, yeah. right? I mean, it kind of ends with a film that Sammy made, but not really. I mean, like a half hour before the movie ends, maybe. Yeah. But I thought it was going to kind of end at a theater with them all watching something that he did. That doesn't, I don't know if that's too much of a spoiler. It's, you know, it's still a good film. It's just, if it had, you know, more of a, more of an ending, I would have liked it a lot more, I think. I will say, I think the last scene is probably my favorite in the movie, though. Yeah. You're talking about the scene with the director? Yeah, and that kind of closes it out, so. Yeah. But yeah, like, before that, like, there's a lot of falling action, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's all about the horizon, Brett. (laughs) Gotta keep the picture interesting. So, yeah, that is my number seven, The Fablements. Check it out. I think so. We weren't really given letterbox scores, but um, this is the first one that I gave four stars to. That's on my list. Armageddon Time got three for me, and then it was three and a half for the next few, and then Fableman's got four stars for me. So from here on out, it's four stars and above. So all mine are uh, four and a half, except for the top two I gave five. Okay. Which is rare for me. I don't give a lot of fives out, yeah. especially for newer movies. Um, so my number seven, we might have some crossover here because my number seven is the Banshees of Inishirin. Let's see, that is my number five. All right. So I guess that means you had to take it. I guess. Banshees of Inishirin. Directed and written by Martin McDonough, starring Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, Pat Short, Barry Keoghan. Keoghan. I feel like he's just playing the same character from uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer in every movie that he's in. <laughs> he's a little bit different in The Eternals, but nobody cares about that movie. The Green Knight, he did the same type of that, um, character. He kind of does that weird thing with his mouth and he's moving around quirky when he <laughs> talks like he has something wrong with him. A little touched in the head. <laughs> Kissed by Jesus. <laughs> Synopsis. Two lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both men. So yeah, this is... Uh, Obviously, a movie driven by the performances, which are great. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny throughout. Obviously, there's some heavy moments in there sprinkled in. There's some shocking stuff. Like, it, it's shocking how far some of this stuff goes. Yeah. Because, um, like, it's, they talk, they, they actually tell you what's going to happen, and you're like, no, they'll never do that. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, like, when it happens, you're like, oh, shit. This guy is serious. Yeah, for me, it was shocking for, like, a second, and then it's just really funny. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I was laughing throughout the whole movie. Like, it's such a basic premise, but yeah. it's so well written, and the performances are so good. Like, it's... uh I don't know. It's just so well made. Um, it's I don't know. I I just really liked it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I know there was some criticism I saw about the metaphors and what it's really about because it's kind of a the whole story is an allegory for the Irish Civil War. You could say for Civil War or war in general. Um. It was it was fine with, uh, by me. I didn't think they hit you over the head with it. Now, obviously, there's they allude to it several times, but yeah, yeah, I figured they kind of were going for that, but like it's like like you said, they don't hit you over the head with it. Like like you're aware that it's happening during the war, and the war is happening over on the mainland while they're on this small island. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's. It's a movie about the the relationship between these two friends. And like you can read deeper into it if you want, and I'm sure you can find whatever you want to find there. Yeah. But like it works at a surface level, you know, just fine. There was even a couple of things I'd even really think about necessarily like looking into more of the in-depth analysis. I looked at online. There's a couple of things I was like, you know, that was something that was a little clever that I didn't necessarily think about. So that, there was a little bit of subtlety, I thought, or enough, more than enough. How about the witch lady? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's not really a witch, but she kind of looks like a witch and she keeps popping yeah. up whatever bad stuff happens. Yeah. Uh, how do you pronounce uh, Har- a harbinger? Yeah. Of uh, death or bad things, like you like you said, Harbinger, a bad omen, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, there was a lot to like here. Um, you know, this is the same team that brought you in Bruges, and I remember I've I've watched it once. I have it. Um, we're at the time thinking like meh, because it was built up so much for me. But I'd like to revisit that now. I've seen it once. I remember liking it quite a bit, but I, I haven't watched it again. Yeah. It's it's a lot weirder than I expected it to be. Like, I just heard it's really good, but I didn't hear any specifics before I had seen it, which I think helped because yeah. it was a lot more shocking. <laughs> I had just seen you know? a lot of clips of, you know, Gleason Colin, Colin Farrell, a cunt. So I was yeah. like, well, this will be fun. <laughs> What's a bridge calling each other cunts and brews? So, and they're hitmen, right? Yeah, they're like waiting for the the uh, heat the or- to blow off, and uh, somebody's supposed to come pick them up at some point. They're waiting so they're for just their hanging out in, or something. Yeah, they're just hanging out in Bruges until their uh, their connection comes and gets them. And you know, it starts off with them just like quarreling forever, and then like bunch of weird shit starts happening as they start kind of exploring the city sure i think we got all of it any other thoughts you had on it 
No, I mean, like I said, I don't think it's that deep. I think it's just great performances and great writing. Yeah. You know, and it's, sometimes that's all you need. It's uh, very entertaining. It can also be a, you can ponder it and think about it for as long as you want, if, if you wish. Yes. So that is my number seven. So we have to go to your number six. That's right. Which is, I'm going to yield the floor to you. I know we're going to crash cross over here. And my number six is the Northman. That is my number one. Okay. Take it away. All right. The Northman. Directed by Robert Eggers. Starring Alexander Skarsgård. Nicole Kidman. Cleus Bang. Ethan Hawke. Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, Gustav Lind. Elliot Rose. Willem Dafoe. That's probably good enough. Old Lady White is in there. You remember Old Lady White? I told that story multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> uh, synopsis, a young Viking prince is on a quest to avenge his father's murder. Yeah, I, I loved how uh, just like uh, brutal this movie was. Like how animalistic Alexander Skarsgård is in it. Just like everything about it is the the cinematography, the the music, the the sound, the uh, the acting, the violence. I mean, just it's been a while since I've seen a movie like this where it was so masculine, unapologetically <laughs> masculine, <laughs> and uh, you know he throws in these little uh, kind of. Uh, I guess folklore type of things in there that are like kind of fantasy elements and right. And it it just worked. Like everything in it worked for me. Like I was you know, I was sitting there mouth agape through the whole movie. <laughs> just like, God, I love this. And they like they they play into the uh the prophecy of him uh avenging his father's death and uh you know, he, he has so many opportunities to, to do it, but it doesn't fit the prophecy. So he's got to hang out and, uh, you know, wait for the perfect time. And and then the, the final scene where it's backdropped against the volcano that's, you know, erupting. I, I thought it looked amazing. Masculine urge to fight your uncle naked in a volcano. <laughs> and it's so great. Like, I don't want to spoil stuff, but fuck it. Like, he gets... Like both his arms like slashed, so they're totally useless, and he just like totally fucking hulks up and <laughs> gets the last blow. In. And I was just like, God, this movie is so good. So yeah, it was my favorite movie of the year. So uh I, I don't know what else to say. It's uh like I said, everything worked for me. It was uh it was an easy ASAP coming out of the theater and uh you know, it came out pretty early in the year and, and nothing topped it for me. Yeah, I've, uh, much like you, I'm a fan of Robert Eggers. I know it's not the cool thing to say these days, but it's the right thing to say. He hasn't made a bad movie yet. He hasn't. Now, The Lighthouse, I was, wasn't was as enamored as a lot of people, but... I love The Lighthouse. The Witch, I, I love The Witch. Lighthouse, I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. 
a little weird. <laughs> I, I like weird. the Northman a lot more than the lighthouse. I like the lighthouse, the aesthetic of, yeah. of how he made it feel like it's of the era. Sure. Um, but yeah, go ahead on the Northman. No, you uh, you touched on uh, most of most of how I felt about it. Just you know, not quite as much. It wasn't my favorite, but it's it's a hell of a movie, and the uh, the imagery is it's you know it's shot beautifully, looks great. Like the action, did like the uh, masculine nature of it. I forget what that we talked about it on the episode be on an episode before, but the somebody had somebody's letterbox review was like four stars. The masculine urge to fight your uncle naked in a volcano—that <laughs> was so funny. Yeah, there wasn't really much to dislike about this movie. I, I didn't—I didn't see much to dislike. Didn't really have any faults for me. No, what was funny is like before it came out, people were like talking about how the studio interfered and Robert Eggers didn't get to make the movie he wanted to make. And like after I saw the movie, I'm like, well, I don't know what the fuck they did to interfere, but this is pretty fucking good the way it is. <laughs> you know, like I don't know what he wanted to do, but I doubt they didn't they fuck interfered. it up too bad. The lighthouse was well received, as was the witch. I don't think they were gonna be like, hey, it's raining in a bit. It's not like it's a three hour movie, you know. No, but I, I think this one had a considerably bigger budget because I think it was uh universal. Yeah released it i think it was and it it did not do great from what i remember i mean it's the victim of you know it was still it was early 2022 when it came out yeah it came out in april not everyone was back tom cruise hadn't saved cinema yet so people were not (laughs) back in the theaters in april like they were in may june i think it suffered from People saying it's uh, toxically masculine, mm-hmm. which I don't think is a negative, and um, shouldn't be, especially when you're telling a story about Vikings. No shit, right? <laughs> and I think the the rumors of uh, studio interference and Robert Eggers being displeased with it for whatever reason, I don't think that helped either. I think that hurt a lot of the box office stuff. Plus, it's a hard R. You know, and um, yeah. you know it's it's very uncomic booky. Although it is, I mean, I I guess you could argue that it's kind of a, you know, similar to a comic book superhero movie, but it's it's very anti Marvel in, in the way it's made. Yeah, but I don't know. My favorite movie of the year, The Northman. Okay, so do I go again now then? Since there was crossover, no, I, no okay. I think it's my number six now. Okay, right. And my number six. Make sure I'm looking at the right one. Terrifier two, number six, huh? Wow, number six on my list. Written and directed by Damien Leone, starring Lauren Lavera, Haley Hyman. What? <laughs> Haley Hyman. Okay. Uh, speaking of which, you should look up Crypticon because everyone on this cast is going to be a Crypticon. Oh, yeah? There's like six, seven people from Terrifier 2. They're going to be I there. do not want to meet David Howard Thornton. Well, he has not been announced as uh, attending as of yet, but um, I'm sure he'll be there. 
But yeah, everyone else from Terrifier 2 is going to be there. Jenna Canal, uh, your girl, Felissa Rose. Ooh, now I got to see it. Ooh, would I love to jump on her bones. Mm. <laughs> there's uh, there's some other, I don't know if I want to name all these cast members. She's Shower Cock? <laughs> no, she plays a teacher. Okay. She plays a school teacher, so they're... Although it would probably be fitting if she did, because there's a lot of teachers who are into that type of thing. <laughs> well, it depends if she's teaching second graders or not. Uh, speaking of, there's a there's a story recently about a lunch lady who was having sex with a student, and then like a couple of days later, the New York Post had a headline that says, uh, "I don't know, they accused pedophile or whatever accused." Uh, or lunch lady accused of having sex with student spotted at her house. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, where else (laughs) is she going to (laughs) go? Slow news day. (laughs) Anyways, Terrifier 2. Um, After being resurrected by a sinister entity, Art the Clown returns to the timid town of Miles County where he targets a teenage girl and her younger brother on Halloween night. It starts right after the events of the first movie, and then it, uh, I think it jumps ahead a year to the next Halloween. And um, this one has a final girl in it, uh, and uh, you get to meet her and her brother and kind of the family. And they spend a lot of time developing the character, so they get... It does a much better job of that than the first one. Uh, so you're actually invested in the victims or potential victims. Mm-hmm. It's not just like uh, gore for gore's sake or, you know, murder you know, random people that you don't spend any time with. Okay. Um, and they build a little bit of uh, backstory and folklore around the whole Art the Clown thing, which is kind of fun. And, um, yeah, the... Uh, the, the reason you're going, though, I mean, that's all very nice and good, but the reason you're going is it's very violent and very creatively violent, and it's uh, all practical effects, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's got a lot of really cool stuff in there. Um, you got a weak stomach? Maybe not for you, but it's, it's probably over the top enough that... Uh, you know, you could probably stomach it, I would think. Although they were running stories that people were throwing up at movie theaters because of it. Mm-hmm. So passing out. <laughs> I don't know how much truth there is to that. Who was that guy back in the sixties who used to run ads like that? Um, what was his name? He did like uh The House on Haunted Hill or something like that. God, I can't remember. William Castle. Oh, okay. You familiar with William Castle? He used to run gimmicks like that, like yeah, you know, um, we got EMTs in the in the lobby just in case. <laughs> <laughs> then his movies all sucked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, this this is a bloody good time. There's a lot of funny stuff. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of blood and guts and gore and. Uh, it looks fantastic. 
yeah, if you're a fan of the first one, uh, I think this one's even better than that. And uh, they leave it open for a potential series of sequels. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to them. I think they did a great job of building up characters that you can care about um, and, and root for against art as a villain as opposed to, to cheering for the villain like you do in a lot of horror movies. Sure. All right. Well, we are down to my number four now, which is Empire of Light. Directed and written by Sam Mendes. Starring Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, Tom Brooke, Tanya Moody, Hannah Onslow. They'll do it for cast. Synopsis. A drama about the power of human connection during turbulent times set in an English coastal town in the early 1980s. So kind of like Armageddon time, this is set in the early 80s. So, you know, 80s, right up my wheelhouse, like that aesthetic. And this, of course, revolves around the people that are working at a movie theater, something that I am very familiar with. So I've worked at three different theaters over the course of about mm, 15, 16 years, across about three decades, all the way from the early aughts to now. So uh, obviously the it's kind of right up my alley. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things I can connect with, but the cinematography was incredible. Roger Deakins never disappoints. That is the case of as well with Empire of Light. Everything just looks incredible in here. It's like magic, Brett. It's like magic. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the aesthetic of that that movie. That's by far the thing that I liked most about it. I didn't yeah. think the story all came together, but mm -hmm. it looks fantastic. I agree with that. Yeah, it's kind of centered around uh, Olivia Coleman, who's a middle-aged woman who has mental health issues. And she's also kind of at the center of a love triangle. Everybody wants to do her. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, obviously, the, this was probably one of the reasons that you didn't like it as much as me. Your suspension of disbelief can only be uh, to an be... extent. I think to an extent, but I I think there's like a lot of stuff in there that they they got a little ambitious with it, and uh, you know they they got threads about oh the movie's great oh isn't racism bad isn't it weird that this lady has mental health problems but the you know young a kid half her age wants to do her and her boss who's older than her wants to do her and like half her age like, that's being threads. generous it's less than half her age <laughs> there, there are too many threads and they they couldn't tie them all together uh as, as well as I, I would have hoped yeah I, I would could see that it's pretty ambitious i guess i'm just a little more forgiving of it because of my kind of personal history with working at a movie theater and even uh, to a lesser extent, like mental health, I've had smaller problems, but very, very small and compared to what Olivia Coleman's character has. So yes. with certain people talking about well, they don't like how they handled, I guess, mental health in the early 80s with her character. I mean, I can kind of see it. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, I don't know. It's obviously it's not my experience, but I have a tiny bit in that area as well as the 
elephant in the room, the suspension of disbelief can only be strained so far with Olivia Coleman and everyone wanting her. But, uh, I mean, she's a great actress. I've only seen her in The Favorite and Empire of Light. Well, I've seen her in more, but this is the only time she's been a leading lady in anything that I've seen. Yeah. And... Yeah, well, I, was, I don't want to interrupt, but uh, I was just going to say, you know, I think there's kind of a lack of subtlety in some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. When she's exhibiting her uh, symptoms, it's very obvious, right? Yeah. And then with the racial stuff, like there's one scene, you know, it looked like it was straight out of a zombie movie because they spotted, yeah. <laughs> they spotted a, a black guy. That was and, another uh, thing I was going to bring up. Well, the, the scene you're talking about, yeah, I... Mostly agree with you there. There's another scene where there's kind of a, basically a riot, I would say. And I don't know enough about the history of the UK, at least specifically in that that area of the UK and that time in its history. I know nothing about it. So, right, like, like for that scene, I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe that happened exactly how how, how they show it. I have no idea. So, like at that point, I don't really care. And yeah, it does have the stereotypical scene with, you know, what are you doing around here, boy? Basically, but the, <laughs> the British equivalent. Right. You in the wrong neighborhood, boy. You know, that was almost like the like a deliverance type scene or a or a character, I should say. You know, just a southern racist, but you know, you're in the wrong you're in the like, wrong state. <laughs> like citizen toxic. Yeah. Uh which was it was also based on true events. <laughs> yeah, so I mean those I those don't really bother me. My suspension of disbelief is not does not waver during those scenes, or even with the the mental health. It's just mainly the the love triangle with Colin Firth. And <laughs> although you know you think about it, Colin Firth, he's when you picture well maybe not when you picture him, but when you think about Colin Firth and how he's been is treated or kind of sold to you in the past over the past say 10 15 years wouldn't you say that people consider him a sex symbol like women fawn after him right yeah i think so and like well, i, I, I don't think, get that you know i think he made more sense as the boss abusing his power sure yeah. you know and uh him being older and her being probably the closest in age to him whereas like the other women in the theater were much much younger and possibly underage and the fact that her ass just felt so good in his hands <laughs> so like that made more sense but like the the interracial uh may december romance <laughs> yeah that's what i'm saying though I'm like well call him first so he's supposedly a male sex symbol right a british sure. Male sex symbol, eye candy for the ladies. I never saw a single man or anything like. At least at, at one point he was. I mean, I saw I the King's like Speech. He's older now. He was kind of in that older role of rom. Well, not rom. Well, some rom coms, but also just romantic yeah. dramas sure. as the lead. I was never against that. I would say <laughs> it was just kind of indifferent. Didn't care, but I I knew of it. I knew that's. I knew some women really liked him. So I just chalk it up to that. It must be some British thing that I'll just never get that some people just fawn after Olivia Coleman or don't, uh, they don't bat an eye when other people do, I guess. 
No, but like I said, I I think his his uh, I don't know if you want to call it a relationship, but his involvement with Olivia Coleman's character made more sense. Yeah, definitely. As a you know a matter of convenience as the proprietor and boss of the movie theater, mm-hmm. it was just uh, you know she's basically trading sexual favors for. Um, better uh job opportunities yeah and uh or so she thinks you know well yeah that's the implication uh, whether or not it's helping or not (laughs) not necessarily but that made more sense yeah Uh, and they're much closer in age and like i said i think he's older than her Mm -hmm. so that would make more sense but the other guy's showing up and like oh man i gotta get with that (laughs) I also really like Toby Jones's character. He was the projectionist. It's always fun to to see the process and brings back memories of you know thirty five millimeter film and working with that. And what was that movie he showed her? It's a movie that I've uh, many times thought about watching and never did. Yeah, I've never seen it. It's, Being uh, there, I believe. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. I say it's about a guy who watches a lot of TV and then somehow becomes very influential in politics. Mm. But uh, yeah, I I just I really enjoy the the look of it. It looks terrific, and I really like that movie theater. It's so cool, and the even the the dilapidated uh, upstairs wing that isn't used anymore. Me, I was just like, oh, think of the possibilities. Like we got to fix this place <laughs> up and open. Let's let's do it. Let's expand. But yeah, so that uh, definitely brought up some memories. So yeah, Empire Light. I don't want to dwell on it too much from a number four. What is next on your list? Oh, that was your number four because you already did your number five. Yeah. So I'm at number five on my list. My number five. IMDb claims it's a 2021 movie, but it didn't come out till 2022. Called The Phantom of the Open. Directed by Craig Roberts, starring Mark Rylance, Ian Porter. I think these are all in a random order. Sally Hawkins. I don't know. All you need to know is Mark Rylance. He's fantastic. Um, synopsis is Morris uh, Flitcroft, a dreamer and unrelenting optimist, manages to gain entry to the 1976 British Open Golf Championship qualification round despite despite being a complete novice now yes this is a movie about golf but you don't need to be a fan of golf to enjoy it it's uh it's a real classic underdog story really uh, a genuine feel-good movie um like i said mark rylance is fantastic um he's a he's a guy who gets laid off of his uh his job at the uh the docks and he just happens to uh see the british open on television and he decides he's going to play in it and through some series of events he ends up in the tournament mm-hmm. and he's the worst golfer in the history of golf <laughs> and he becomes like a, a media sensation and um you know he he continues to try to find ways into the tournament and it's, it's funny. It's, 
it's really entertaining. Yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. It'll make you feel good at the end of the day. Seems like a movie up my alley. I'm big from a big golfing family, so it's it's a guy you want to root for. You know, he's an like I said, an unrelenting optimist and a dreamer. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, he'll make you want to go and follow your dreams. I don't know. I'm I'm not always in the you know movies like this because they're kind of sappy, but. Uh, this one just hits the spot. It, it does it really well. Um, so don't sleep on it. I know the guys at Movie Drone <clears throat> made a crack about this movie on an episode like a month or so ago. And they should not be sleeping on it because The Phantom <laughs> of the Open is the number five best movie of the year. All right. Top five. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to my number three, which is... Elvis, make your list. No. Okay. Directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring Austin Butler, Tom Hanks, Olivia DeYoung, Helen Thompson, Richard Roxburg, Kelvin Harrison Jr., David Wenham, Cody Smith McPhee, Luke Bracey. I think that'll do it for the cast. The life of American music icon Elvis Presley from his childhood to becoming a rock and movie star in the 1950s while maintaining a complex relationship with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Before this, I'd only seen one Baz Luhrmann film, Romeo and Juliet, and I haven't seen that since the 90s. So, like, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I know of all the movies that he's done. I've just never watched them. I know he's pretty showy from what I gathered. So I guess I, I'm trying to say is that I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to get with him, but right. I will say that I was, thought it was pretty jarring the first hour or so in I'm watching and I'm just thinking like fucking a Baz Luhrmann. Will you just let one fucking scene breathe? Just one. <laughs> it's not how he works. <laughs> it's not how he works. <laughs> uh, I think I remember a similar kind of like frenetic editing to Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's been so long since I've seen it, but yeah, I watched that for the first time, I think at the beginning of last year and it's, yeah, it's very frenetic. It's, it's good. I liked it, but it's uh, very, uh, yeah, very much (laughs) like that. (laughs) And I mean, I'm not, I don't care so much if, you know, he does this with all of his films. You know, I'm not going to go out and see Australia soon. And he did Moulin Rouge, didn't he? And uh, some of the some of other so. stuff he's done. I think he did The Great Gatsby, which is sure. one that I did not see, but thought about watching many times. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter to me if he does this with every film that he does it would just kind of matter like i thought about it like well you know it is it is probably pretty fitting for elvis and his music and his whole persona and colonel tom parker especially with the with the showmanship just kind of thinking like well this is probably the perfect way to show elvis and i'm far from an expert on elvis on elvis i have a very elementary knowledge of him he's someone that I do like some of his songs. He's someone I'm excited to get into, you know, later. I just don't have any time right now. He's one of those people like, I know I'm going to like the more I dig 
dig deeper into his career and into his music and into his films. I kept waiting for them to play in the ghetto, but they didn't play it until the end credits. <laughs> yeah, there was some uh, updated uh, musical numbers from kind of current rap groups. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he definitely remixed a lot of the music. So yeah, I, I'm excited to kind of get into Elvis's, Elvis's career uh, as well as his film career uh, later on sometime. But, you know, it was pretty distracting at first had to kind of get used to Lerman's style but you know I, I stuck with it and it got to be more palatable and Austin Butler was great as as Elvis I thought I barely knew who Tom Parker was I think I learned about him in my rock and roll history rock and roll class in college that's about it I didn't really remember anything but it's very uh, fascinating learning about their relationship it's almost a Colonel Tom Parker biopic more than an Elvis one. Yeah. I mean, he narrates it and it's from his point of view. Yeah. For the most part, although they, they show you things that are not flattering to Tom Parker. So <laughs> you could argue that it's not, but yeah, it it is. And it isn't You're supposed to kind of make up your own mind. They kind of, Lerman and the and the writers and whatnot, they kind of show you what they think, how they think it went down. But yeah, you can't make up your own mind. There's there's way he's ways he was managing Elvis's business, which seemed to benefit him more than Elvis. But his argument was that he was protecting Elvis. Yeah, and there wouldn't be any Elvis without him. You know. Yeah, he brought the show, and it didn't really come up till Elvis. Tried to sever ties with them. Yeah. Actually, it didn't come up till they tried to go overseas, and then uh, they found out <laughs> that Colonel Tom couldn't go overseas. <laughs> Even though he's a foreigner. Although he said he was from Kentucky or whatever. Yeah. Why does he keep on saying he's from... the? It's like Tommy Wiseau, you know? It's like you don't have an American accent at all. You're clearly not from where you say. I'm Cajun. I'm from Louisiana. No, you're not. Oh, I'm from Louisiana. Everyone sounds like me where I come from. Speaking of, did you hear they remade uh, The Room very seriously with Bob Odenkirk, uh, supposedly? For charity. Supposedly it's real. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to be one of those like live performances you buy a ticket to and it goes to charity or, I mean, like not a live performance, but like, like a Fathom event, you know? Oh, maybe. Yeah. It sounded like it's already filmed. Like Bob Odenkirk said that he, yeah. But it's like they're doing it for charity. Like how big parts. of a how big of of a production is it really going to be? They probably did like a live stage production that they recorded. You know, maybe. But yeah, yeah I, don't I don't know. know. I didn't really look into it. I I just saw it in passing on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So back to Elvis. Austin Butler was terrific. Tom Hanks was. Was Tom Hanks? You know, I I've seen better performances out of him. I wasn't completely sold on his his accent. There was a couple of times I was like, "That's just Tom Hanks talking," <laughs> or he'll declare something like loud. I'm like, "That's just Tom Hanks yelling." Yeah, the Tom Hanks voice came out. That's Woody right there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great uh, production design, the makeup, the the hairstyling, the the outfits, the musical numbers, the the pageantry, 
the showmanship that it all combined for one hell of a movie. And uh, yeah, so that's my number three, Elvis. All right. So I'm on my number four and it's Blonde, directed by Andrew Dominic, starring Anna de Armas. I don't know. Do I have to name anybody else? I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the Anna de Armas show. There's a bunch of other people in it, but Adrian Brody. All these movies list their cast by uh, order of appearance, and it's so annoying. <laughs> Could you just do it by like the the main actors? Anyways. Uh, the synopsis is the story of American actress Marilyn Monroe covering her love and professional lives. Yeah, I love the style of this movie. Uh, maybe more than anything. It, it's almost like a dream. Uh, the way they film the movie. It's, uh, it's almost uh, hard to differentiate what's real and what's in her imagination. Um, and parts of it are in black and white, parts are in color. It's it's just a, a very unique way that they, they shot it uh, stylistically. I think it's a, kind of a, a cautionary tale, obviously. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of people, like, like before I saw it, I, I kept hearing, like, it was such a negative portrayal of her. And basically... Like it's it sounded like she was just getting raped like in every scene. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like there were a few ups, but there's a couple yeah, scenes a where she wasn't raped. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Not saying it was all unconsensual. I think there was some consensual stuff in there. Um but um yeah, I, I thought it was a very uh, unique film. I thought it was a really entertaining story or a, little, a really interesting story. Um, I thought Anna Darmas was fantastic. Although, as I mentioned once in a while, her Cuban accent would slip in here and there uh, and different words that she would pronounce kind of funny. But that's one of the, the very few negatives I have to say about this movie. I think, I think it's uh, the people who didn't like it are wrong <laughs> in this case. And I know you, Eric, didn't like it. How dare you? But um, I, I I would qualify it and say, like, well, I didn't have the best viewing experience. It wasn't the film's fault. It was distracted several times, and it's a long movie. So if it takes yeah. me, like, four hours to watch a three-hour movie, then it's not the best way to watch it. But I would say, like, in relation to Banshees of Inishirin, we talked about how it's you know, there's some subtlety. It's not too heavy handed. Like I thought this was the definition of heavy handed. Like the metaphor was not hard to figure out. And it's just like, they just beat you over the head with it scene after scene. So she's either getting raped or there's 8,000 flashes going off because there's all these cameras. Click, 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 click. Oh, I, I don't think it was that heavy handed. I think they did a great job of demonstrating that she struggled with her public persona and her personal persona. Mm -hmm. She, she, um, you know, her mother had a mental illness that put her in, uh, uh, an institution when she was a young child. And, um, as she grew older, she, she, uh, struggled to find her identity as Norma Jean and as Marilyn. 
Um, and so there was lots of attempts to reconcile those two sides of her personality. And uh, she used a lot of different things to do that. And uh, a lot of them didn't work. So, yeah, it was not the most positive portrayal of her life. But I don't think there was anything like egregiously negative um, either. And I, 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 I thought there was a lot more subtlety than maybe you you would suggest. Um, the uh, the director Andrew Dominic, I really liked his other films. So coupled couple that with the fact that I didn't have the best viewing experience, I, I will give this movie another chance someday. I wouldn't be surprised if I end up really liking it, doing a one eighty on it. Just uh, not this time. It would benefit it if you watched it all the way through because there's so many transitions from one scene to the other that I don't think you can appreciate if you're stopping and starting. Sure. So, um, but I really liked it. it. This one almost made it into the top three for me. Um, but I, you know, I put it at four, but uh, I was very close to putting it higher. All right. Well. We're to my number two, Triangle of Sadness, directed by Ruben Uslind, starring Tobias Thorwood, Harris Dickinson, Charles B. Dean, who is the actress who passed away recently, Giannis Mustis, Vicky Berlin, Dolly DeLeon, Alicia Erickson, Woody Harrelson, and Zlatko Buric. Synopsis, a fashion model celebrity couple join an eventful cruise for the super rich. So this film's kind of split apart into three acts, although, you know, with varying lengths, I would say the first act is, the first part is 20 minutes, and then the second part is hour and a half, and then the last part is about 45 minutes. But uh, it revolves around this couple, this model couple and the the dynamics of their relationship along with their perceived uh, gender roles, uh, societal roles. Movie talks about class, uh, obviously the super rich and the super not rich, Um, but I never felt it was too preachy. Uh, I saw an, uh, an article with the director talking about how he wants to be mean to each of his characters equally regardless of their politics or they're rich or poor. I thought it was really funny uh, throughout, especially on the boat. Woody Harrelson was pretty funny. He's kind of a, he's a drunken uh, American communist. And there was a Russian capitalist that they would trade barbs back and forth, differing ideologies going to battle, so to say. So yeah, it, it never got too preachy for me. I don't know if it did for some people. Uh, if they read it one way is the correct way or the the right way. But um, especially with, with the last act, the last scene, I don't think it really shows anyone in too positive of a light or any way of life is better than the other or capable of of humanity, if that makes sense. I know you weren't a fan of this uh, too long for you. Well, I, I thought... Like there's good stuff in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but it, it just there was too much dead space in between everything. Like it just seemed like it'd be 
okay, here's a good part. And now I got to wait like through a bunch of just like boring shit for the next 10 minutes. And then here's another good part. Did you have the itis when you watched it? A little bit. <laughs> I will say I did. Yeah. I, I, I think I dozed off at least a little bit through the, uh, the scene that everybody said was the best scene in the movie. Um, I caught some of it, but like I was fighting to stay awake at that point. Sure. Um, but I was pretty much with it for the like the whole third part. But like I, I like I said, I I think there's a good movie in there. But like I think they need to edit like a lot of it down, make it a little more, a little tighter, and uh, get get rid of trim some of the fat. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I I think it was it was too long, not necessarily like. You know, a lot of the movies on my list are, are about as long as that one, but um, I don't think they had enough material to warrant that length of a, a, a sure. run time. Uh, the uh, writer director Ruben Uslan, uh, I he's won the Palme d'Or uh, twice now at Cannes with Triangle Sadness and The Square, and I really like The Square as well, which came out about I don't know five years ago or so. And uh, he also did a Force Majeure, which I have not seen, but they already remade into a shitty movie with Will Ferrell. I saw I saw the remake by myself <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> I heard it's terrible, but it's bad. Know. It's not good. It's not yeah. funny. Like there's, it's a comedy, but there's no funny stuff in it. Yeah, like at all. Like I didn't laugh at all. <laughs> he does. He does have a lot of that. Uh, Awkward. I mean, he didn't do that, the one you saw, but he does have a lot of uh, kind of awkward comedy in his films, in The Square and in Triangle of Sadness. So I could see someone trying to imitate that with a remake and then just failing miserably. Yeah. I mean, they might as well have played it straight. <laughs> you know, it's like, Will Ferrell, don't be funny. Yeah. Julia Louise Dreyfus, <laughs> don't be funny. It's like, just argue and, and, it'll be funny that you're arguing mm-hmm. or like this situation is funny because the guy is a coward. Like, well, it's really not that funny. Cause you didn't shoot it funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not doing it right. I don't know. But yeah, like I, triangle and sadness had a lot of funny stuff. You know? Like, uh, like there are a lot of scenes that I, I, I laughed like whatever, but, uh, mm-hmm. There's just so much stuff in between where it's like, why do, why do we need to sit through like all this stuff? Like just you could cut out an hour of this and have a nice tight 90 minute movie. And it, it would probably be great. I'd probably mm-hmm. love it, but I don't know. In its current form, I, I wasn't uh, big on it. I liked it the first time I watched it. And then I had to rewatch some of the second half um, with the wife. And uh, I liked it uh, even more. So I think it's it definitely a film that benefits from repeat viewings, although you're probably not in a rush to do that <laughs> with its length and whatnot. I might at some point, but yeah, yeah, probably not anytime too soon. Sure. Just like with me with Blonde, like I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it again, <laughs> but not for a while because it's long. It's yeah, Blonde is almost three hours. Um, I think Triangle of Sadness is just under two and a half. I think it's more. Let's see here. It was, I just had it. It is. Okay. It is two hours, 27 minutes. 
So you're right, just under. But yeah. So uh, we are to my number one, I think. Wait. Well, uh, do you want, uh, it's you're, probably you're the next. same movie. You're next. I, my, my number two is Top Gun Maverick. Okay, yeah, that's my number one. I didn't think it was going to make it that high up your list, I guess. Actually, but, I, I take that back. It's not my number two. It's my number three. Okay. So uh, Top Gun Maverick, directed by Joseph Kosinski, starring Tom Cruise, Jennifer Connelly, Miles Teller, Val Kilmer, Bashir uh, Salahuddin, John Hamm, Charles Parnell, Glenn Powell, Ed Harris. Synopsis. After 30 years, Maverick is still pushing the envelope as a top naval aviator, but must confront ghosts of his past when he leads Top Gun's elite graduates on a mission that demands the ultimate sacrifice from those chosen to fly it. Spoilers! <laughs> Do we even have to say anything? It's the movie that saved the movies. Yeah. It's the most important film of the year. <laughs> you know, everyone it's... says that every year about some movie that's thematically or you know, culturally relevant to the time. This one is the most important movie this year. It's the only it's it's the first important movie that's really, really good. As Spielberg said it, you know, saved saved Hollywood's ass. And then Hollywood said uh it's not worthy of our praise. I mean, I would know. Uh, I've been working at the theater for the past couple of years during the pandemic, and it has not been good. Uh Top Gun Maverick was a bright spot. There was nobody coming and People did come back. I will also say everything everywhere helped out a lot as an indie smash hit. It, for an indie film, it did a lot of business and it had a lot of staying power at our theater, especially at a theater that kind of specializes in more indie films than it does every blockbuster. We couldn't not show Top Gun and it did right. very well. And it also, it brought the crowd back to the theaters that wasn't coming. Younger kids, are they're going to see the new Marvel movies. Those are doing roughly the same numbers. At least in the first weekend. I mean, they're doing good numbers for not having the, you know, the original, you know, Avengers. They, they do good for one week and then that's it. But, uh, yeah. you know, the diehards still go. Right. Um, I think Shazam 2 is going to just shit the bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is. Lots of good seats available to that one still. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I saw it on the Dolby screen and it was amazing. See it in that Dolby vision with the Dolby Atmos. <laughs> I saw it in the yeah. IMAX in a full house, full of old people, some oh, yeah. in mass, some in not, you know. But yeah, it was there was nothing like it. I, I didn't think I'd get that feeling again. And for the film to be as good as it was. It being a sequel to a movie. For, I mean, I love Top Gun, but this is a sequel. <laughs> uh, right. 30 years in the making here. And I think it's it might even be better than the first one. I think it's slightly better than the first one. Yeah, probably. Uh, you know, maybe that's because I saw it in the theater and it was fucking awesome. I was in an mm -hmm. adrenaline rush. But I, you know, they, they do a great job of... Uh, kind of building on the characters from the first one and uh, having a an actual story with characters that you care about. Right. And, uh, you know, dramatic tension. And it's not just uh, aerial stunts, mm -hmm. you know? 
there's a lot of that stuff too. And that stuff's great on top of it. Plus they add the extra thing at the end. Like you think it's over and they're like, no, shit just got started. <laughs> you know, like, like some people get annoyed with that, but when you have like, Oh, it had too many endings, but when you have several endings that are awesome, then it doesn't matter. And it just keeps getting better. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, that just was better than what I thought it was going to end on. Mm -hmm. So good. So yeah, it, I mean, it made my number three. So and obviously it's your number one. So yeah, I mean the first one obviously a trailblazer, but like you said, it's this one's probably better in every way, shape, or form. Although you know this one starts out the exact same way as the first, and there's you know there's a lot of things that it just kind of does over again, but with the aerial photography and the the story, the performances. Uh, visual effects, everything. It's just kind of, I mean, some of that, it's, it's, some of that's going to happen over, over 30, 40 years. It, things just get better with visual effects and cinematography and things. But man, everything was just top notch. Uh, hats off to Tom Cruise. You know, he dug his feet in the dirt and said, no, we're not really, we're not going to release it. It's not going to go to streaming. We're going to wait and put it on. They the waited two years. They waited two yeah. years for it. Mm -hmm. And it was worth it, hundred percent worth it. I know he had numerous options and ways he could have done a sequel over the years. Finally, waited and got a good story, and it, obviously, it was nice to see Val Kilmer back again. But uh, oh, yeah, it brings a tear to your eye that scene. <laughs> just uh, no weak spots. It was just perfect, and he got to share it with in a communal experience at the theater. With people that didn't think would ever come back to the theater. There we go. Old Fox. <laughs> and I got to follow that up with my number two movie, which I know you didn't really care for that much. Which is? Bullet Train. It's a it's an honorable mention for me. On an admittedly weak year, but it was entertaining. I loved it. Directed by David Leach, starring Brad Pitt, Joey King. Aaron Taylor Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Andrew Koji, Hiroyuki Sonata, Michael Shannon, Sandra Bullock, Bad Bunny, Logan Lerman, Zazie Beats. Synopsis, five assassins aboard a swiftly moving bullet train find out that their missions have something in common. Now, I will say the... The trailers for this movie did not do it justice. Um, and I, I think part of it, there's, there's a ton of comedy in this movie, mm -hmm. but it doesn't work out of context. Like it's very self-referential and like, it's uh, it, it, like I said, it doesn't really work out of context. So like when you're making a trailer and you're putting these jokes in it, like the punchlines don't really work if you don't know what the setup is. But in the movie itself, it's fucking hilarious, at least in my opinion. And there's a lot of great action, and it's very stylized. The uh, I love the music. They have Japanese versions of like really like uh, well-known American songs, which is kind of hilarious, but it fits. I thought all the storylines came together very nicely uh, into a you know a great climax great finale and it's you know it's a brad pitt movie but it's uh 
you know, he's okay, but like the rest of the cast really kind of carries it. So, right. Um, but yeah, it was it was a pleasant surprise. It, it was right up my alley, kind of kind of like those old mid two thousands style movies where everything's kind of green and neon and shit and a lot of fast cuts and uh, kind of cartoonish. I wasn't and... expecting it to be so cartoony. I didn't know it was going to be like a big. Like funny cartoon, basically what it is. Yeah, and uh, I loved it. I I, I was really uh, surprised at how how much I enjoyed it, and I might like just... it more uh, the second time. Kind of knowing that going in, yeah, because I thought I was expecting like a lot of great action, you know, action spectacle, martial arts, choreography, and you know, uh, you know, there are some obviously some fun action scenes, close quarters stuff in a train. Yeah. But nothing groundbreaking or anything like that. It's more entertaining, funny, comedic, uh, cartoony. Yeah. So kind of knowing that going in next time, I think I might be able to enjoy it more versus expecting some great action sequence, you know, a lot of CGI. Yeah. That's the same guy who did, um, I think Deadpool 2, and he yep. did Atomic Blonde, he did Hobbs and Shaw, the Fast and the Furious been off. He was uh, uncredited on John Wick, but I assume that means he didn't really direct it. But, I mean, if, if you like Deadpool 2 or Atomic Blonde, it's similar in style to those two movies. Right. Um, but I think Bullet Train is probably better than both. It's yeah, because like, like Deadpool, I never like going into Deadpool. I'm not like, oh, I need to see this for the action, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like the action is, like you said, when they're on the train, it's kind of close quarters and it's more uh, comedic and stuff. But once they get to their destination and everything kind of comes to a head, it gets real wild. And uh, I really enjoy that, too. And there's some surprises in there. There's a lot of funny stuff with Brian Tyree Henry and um, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry's character is an obsession with Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah. And everybody <laughs> he meets, he assigns a character from the show is, uh, to match the personality of that person. And I don't know anything about Thomas the Tank Engine, but I thought that shit was hilarious. And they run it through the entire movie. Mm -hmm. like it's they never let up on that running joke but yeah bullet train uh i loved it my number two is uh is the only uh other than the north man it's the only other movie i gave five stars to this year on letterboxd all right well i guess that'll do it for our top 10 list you want to quickly name off some uh honorable mentions or no uh one of mine was bullet time another one was uh Bullet Train. You said Bullet Time. Uh, Scream. I like Scream, but in a weak year for movies, I didn't really have much for honorable mentions. And me liking Scream wasn't... Uh, I mean, in a normal <laughs> year, it wouldn't be an honorable mention. So really quickly, these are the other movies that I rated at least four stars. Um, Samaritan, the uh, Amazon Prime superhero movie with Stallone, Sylvester mm -hmm. Stallone. Violent Night, the Christmas movie with David Harbour. Beast, 
with Idris Elba and the Lion, surprisingly good. Fire of Love was that uh, Oscar-nominated documentary. Right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the new Netflix movie. I thought that was going to be on your list. Not quite. It was, uh, it was a little bit lower. Ambulance, the Michael Bay flick. Summering, which is a coming-of-age movie. Um, kind of a updated um, Stand By Me a little bit. Bones and All, the cannibal uh, romance. Yeah, there's another one movie. I would have liked to have seen and possibly could have made my list. But The Inspection, which was the... Uh, the Game Marine and Boot Camp, which was surprisingly good. Didn't expect it to be that good. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, and uh, All Quiet on the Western Front was the last one. So all of those I would give a soonish to. So okay, check them out. All right. Well, uh, I'll tell the folks at home where they can get some WTM merch. You can head over to wtmwatchthismovie.creator-spring.com. Uh, or sorry, you can reach out to us. You can email us at watchthismovie.yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter at watchthis__movie or Brett at PositivelyWolf1, which is also his letterbox profile. Mine is under Eric underscore Mulder. You can check out our website at wtmwatchthismovie.com. And please rate and review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many other podcast apps. We will check you later. Guess we'll see you around. All right, check you later. Bye. Wait, man, why are you always such a dork, man? What are you talking about? Check you later. Check you later. (laughs) Hey, man, you're off my case.